Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist Podcast. Hi, everyone. Uh, we are back after some delay, but we have an amazing guest for you. It's uh, Dr. Valerie Steele, who is one of the one of my favorite people to talk about fashion. Uh, insanely smart and insanely with an insanely encyclopedic knowledge of fashion uh, that uh, goes beyond anything I could ever dream of having. And I thought, who could be better to nerd out on the history of contemporary fashion than Valerie? So, Dr. Steele, welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to start off by asking you about uh, your personal journey that obviously morphed into a professional journey. Because I don't think throughout our conversation I ever asked you, how did you get into fashion and how did you develop your career? Accidentally. It was all serendipitous. I... um... I have a very checkered academic background. I dropped out of school when I was 15 and never graduated from high school and then tested into Dartmouth. That was the only Ivy League school I got into. And I hitchhiked up there the first week of class and eventually ended up um, going to Yale to get a PhD in modern European cultural and intellectual history. And the first term that I was at Yale, We had a class where the assignment was to give a report on two articles from a scholarly journal. And I don't really remember what I read. I think they were something about the French Revolution. But my classmate, Judy Coffin, reported on two articles from the feminist journal Signs, one about how Victorian corsets were dangerous and oppressive to women, and the other that said, no, no, they're sexually liberating. And it was just as though a light bulb went on and I realized fashion's part of culture. I can do fashion history. So that changed my life. Um, you know, they talk about, did a book ever change your life? In this case, it was two articles that I hadn't even read, which changed my life. And I went to the library and saw that most of the work on fashion was either journalistic or else a very limited kind of costume studies, you know, where you'd see mm, how clothes developed and what dates they developed at, that kind of thing. But nothing that asked any real historical questions about what clothing could mean or say about the period in which it was created. And so from that moment on, I started working on the history of fashion. Yeah. Can I just, I just want to interject here very quick, because this is obviously Anyone who knows Styles like I knows like this is like the topic. Why do you think so many people find fashion culturally irrelevant when it is incredibly relevant and it's been proving again and again how culturally relevant fashion is and how it can speak? It really is in a constant conversation with with the world. Well, I think that the situation with fashion is a little bit part of the whole mind-body discourse, that people think fashion is purely a physical, material phenomenon, and specifically a superficial one on this, you know, on the surface of the body. It's not deep or profound. It has nothing to say about the mind or soul of the person who wears it. And so it's dismissed for that reason. 
And then, of course, because for the last couple of hundred years, fashion has been predominantly associated with women and women's bodies, that's been another reason to dismiss it as something that's unimportant. Right. It which in 2021, there, there, I feel like that's changing, but there's still that view of fashion as something that is just superficial and frivolous is still quite prevalent in large parts of our society. That's right. I mean, it is, it is diminishing somewhat, and everybody admits that it's economically important. But even then, they tend to demonize it and say, yeah, fashion is big business, but it's an evil business, as though, you know, the ingredients that you need to make cell phones weren't problematic also. Right. Yeah. Uh, of course, on some level, you know, fashion has has been doing a pretty good job at uh, dismissing its, you know, like making it easy to dismiss itself. But yes. I feel like in the past couple of decades, what I'm seeing, what I what I find really interesting, how fashion has become culturally quite dominant on some level. Because I see, I always say, like the kids in the '80s wanted to be artists then they wanted to be musicians in the 90s and now i feel like everybody wants to be a fashion designer and have a fashion line i'm a little bit in disagreement i think that they wanted to be fashion designers more in the 90s and that that the bloom is off the rose for that a lot of young people are turning against fashion in certain ways but you know it's interesting because many people who are in the fashion world don't like to take fashion too seriously. They think that's boring and that takes the glamour away from it. So in my own career, on the one hand, I had academics saying fashion was frivolous. And then I had fashion people saying, oh, you're such an egghead. That's so boring. You know, that's not fashion. It's just something that's fun and pretty and, and trendy. Uh, it's not something to be taken seriously. So even there, there was a kind of ambivalence about it. Yeah, I feel like you you know someone in your position in particular like you you always must be caught in the crossfires of it's not serious enough for academia and then it, it, yeah and like you said and then you talk to some fashion people and you're like oh you're too serious you're so serious where I'm always like well that's what makes it interesting you know, I think know. so too. Yeah. But it's funny. It's, they think that if you're talking about it, you are making it less interesting, less glamorous. And I always think, you know, it's like people don't become less interested in sex because you talk about it. You obviously doing it and talking about it are two different things. So the same way, I'm surprised there's this feeling that fashion is so fragile that if you talk seriously about it, you're going to somehow damage it or make it less it's as though they think there's something of a con going on in fashion and that's going to be exposed. Right, exactly. So, okay, I have a question for you and I always find it. Uh, so there is this ambivalent thing, at least it's ambivalent to me. So, I, and, and same goes for art. Uh, you know, a designer, an artist, and fashion designers by extent, you, they can take a position of, I don't need to talk about my art. I don't need to explain my art. You know, it's there for you to interpret. 
But like in my position as a journalist and as a critic, uh, if I may say so myself, um, <laughs> I always find that suspect. And I always find that, well, if you cannot explain your work to me, if you cannot go in in depth about it, I always find it automatically suspect. I'm, I always think like, well, what are you hiding? And if you have something to hide, does that mean you're actually, there isn't that much there to begin with? Do you ever, oh, see, I, do you I, yeah, I, don't, I don't agree with you at all there because I feel that a lot of times artists are people who, you know, they're visual or they're musical. They don't necessarily have the words to describe what they're doing, but they know they know what's right for them. Um, when an artist has a very clear package spiel about what he or she is doing, that's when I tend to be a little suspicious. It sounds a bit canned to me, like they've read all these theories about trendiest theory about art for right now, or the most popular, you know, thing to say about fashion, you know, and so they'll just say that, but it's not really relevant. It's not really what they're doing. Mm -hmm. so, so, so I don't mind. I don't yeah. mind if they can't talk about it. I don't think that's the problem. I think. They, if they say you interpret it, most of them are not happy if you interpret it in a way that's not flattering to them. But that's just human nature. Right. Yeah. No, okay. Yeah. No, I get that. Yeah, I'm always – I go back and forth. Sometimes I feel like, no, this is actually there isn't that much there. And sometimes – you know, with someone like Tom Brown, for example, right? You can see that he's extremely mm. talented. And he maintains – he said, you know, I, I, I make this – sort of collage of influences and I make it so you can't ever tell the entire story. There's something a bit Kafkaesque about his work, right? You know, it's, it's, it's mm. a bit surreal and there is never really a clear exit out of that story. And, but, but there I can, I can tell by the clothes that's, and by the storytelling that okay, he is obviously very talented but so he leaves that room for interpretation, but then there's yes. some other designers where I'm like, no, I can't, I, I like, I can't see anything there. So I just wanted to know, like, when you, when you, because you have to write about fashion as well, of course. And so it, it sounds like you're totally fine, like roaming with your own mind. Yes, I don't think, for, for one thing, I don't think the artist is necessarily the best interpreter of his or her work. Um, even if the artist is able to talk well about her art, say, it might be an incorrect interpretation or one that's too, she might be too close to the work to really see its significance in society. So I'm interested in what the artist or designer has to say, but I don't necessarily think that's the last word on the topic. And the meaning isn't really in the close alone, because the meaning keeps being reinterpreted by how it's taken. If you think, for example, of some of McQueen's shows, like Highland Rape, when he first did that, the journalists were going, you know, this is all about, you know, misogyny and cruelty to women and the spectacle of women suffering. And then he said, no, no, you idiots. It's about a metaphoric rape <laughs> of Scotland. Um, and then he talked about how he wanted to, you know, empower women. And that became then the discourse for a while. Yes, yes, empowering women. But the ideas they continue to change and evolve how people interpret things. I think probably the reality about those shows is somewhere in between that there definitely is hostility and aggression floating around a show like that. 
but it's not so simple as to say it's it's misogyny because I think a lot of McQueen shows are really about himself and his own sexuality um, as as opposed to a, an ordinary social narrative about you know women being raped or Scotland being raped or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we just talk more about McQueen for a second? Sure. Uh, I I wanted to know what you thought about. Uh, I want to know what you thought about his work in general because I feel like when we lost him, it was almost like we lost an, a certain era. Yeah. Um, I I remember very clearly um, thinking and and telling journalists how I thought that McQueen was the most important designer of his generation. You know, while he was still alive. I was, it was and remained tremendously impressed with the power of his work and the way uh, he treated his work, the way an artist treats his or her work, that it was taking it seriously as a, an expression of really deep, deep and urgent feelings that he might or might not have been able to express in any other way. And they were ideas about beauty, but also about terror. And there was tremendous um, creativity, but also tremendous aggression. And I think we forget how much aggression is often a part, maybe even a necessary part of artistic creation. Uh, If you think back to sort of archaic feelings within an individual's unconscious, I think that destructiveness and libido are often almost impossible to tell apart. Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like uh, I I couldn't agree more with you there. And I also feel like a lot of great art is done in opposition to something. And I think McQueen had that anger towards society and probably towards himself. He's almost like the, now that I think about it, he's almost like the Francis Bacon of fashion. Yeah. Uh, possibly, yes. That's a good. That's a good analogy. I've been lately thinking of him in terms of Louise Bourgeois, for example, where sexuality and destruction are very closely linked. If you haven't seen her show up at the Jewish Museum, it's absolutely fantastic. It's all about her um, psychoanalytic interpretation of her artwork. No, I haven't seen it yet. Um, I will check it out for sure. Um, anyway, we, we, we went off on a tangent, which, which is great, actually. But I wanted to go back a bit uh, to your work. Uh, how did you end up uh, at FIT? Well, there are not many places which focus on fashion. So once I got my PhD with a doctoral dissertation about the erotic aspects of Victorian fashion... I pretty much made myself unemployable by any normal (laughs) history department. So for for more than a decade, I was an adjunct professor uh, at FIT, at Parsons, at Cornell, at Columbia. I mean, I was teaching all over the place, but I couldn't get a real full-time teaching job. And then by chance, um, I was offered a job at the museum at FIT. And that became an opportunity for me to move from writing books and editing my magazine to um, to 
working with other people and learning how to curate exhibitions. Actually, I say my magazine started in 1997, which is the same year I was hired full-time by the museum at FIT. So both those things were, were simultaneous changes in my life. Okay. And then that's the fashion theory. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So when you, uh, and I have to tell the audience and I have to compliment you, Valerie, I mean, the Museum of the Faisi punches like way above its weight. And some of my favorite exhibits were there. And a lot, like so many of them were prescient. And of course, I have to go back to my favorite, which is obviously the Gothic fashion exhibit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And, you know, when I saw that, I... I was still, I think, and I think I was just starting to write. What year was it? I don't quite remember. I, you know, I don't remember exactly. Something around 2000. Yeah, it was. Maybe yeah, a it little. Wasn't even, yeah, I think like, yeah, maybe like 2005, maybe, maybe something 2005 like that. 2005, maybe. Yeah, because I remember I took my two, like two-year-old daughter. And I was like, <laughs> look, it's my, it's my queen over here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um so I want to talk a little bit about uh, how you go about putting an exhibit together. What makes you think, you know, this is a great topic for right now, or this is a great topic in general. What is it in the zeitgeist uh, that speaks to you? Well, let's take, let's take Gothic, for example. Um I worked on that for a couple of years before the show opened, but the initial origin was even earlier, was in the, in the mid-1990s when I was still teaching fashion history, and I just prepared a lecture about Gothic style and fashion. And I was looking at how advertisements for Chanel black nail polish were highlighting kind of a Gothic theme. And there were interesting, some designers who were obviously inspired by Gothic themes like Rick Owens, etc. So I had, I had a slideshow and a little lecture on that. And I had seen, of course, the show about subculture and style that was at the Victoria and Albert Museum, which looked at punk style, hippie style, mod style, hip hop, and then how they were picked up and sort of ripped off by professional designers. And it occurred to me that I didn't believe that that was what was going on with Gothic style, that it seemed to me that the kids who were goths, you know, subcultural style, they were inspired by some of the same things that the designers were inspired by. They were all, you know, reading Baudelaire or, you know, early Gothic stories, Edgar Allan Poe, poetry. They were looking at vampire films. They were getting the same sort of imagery and ideas and then were transforming it into clothing that evoked some of the key Gothic tropes, ideas about paranoia, about destruction, about degeneration. And so that was, I started working on putting the show together. And then by chance, I had to go see Malign Muses, which was Judith Clark's show about how fashion looks back. And I came home from that show and called a staff meeting and said, oh, we have a paradigm shift has occurred. We have to do exhibitions completely differently. The mise-en-scene has to be much, much more important in our shows. It's not just telling a story with clothes. 
we have to do it more cinematically. Um, and so we worked, for example, doing things that evoked vampires, things that evoked Victorian cult of mourning, things that looked at the idea of goth clubs, of, you know, crumbling ruined castles, of laboratories, all of these kind of gothic scenes and fitting clothes into those and fitting in the various ideas. For example, the laboratory is where you create monsters or the vampire as being, you know, sort of an erotic figure, sort of the eroticism of death. Uh, and we played with figuring out which garments help fit into these stories. It was, so it was one of the most exciting exhibitions that we worked on. It was really, really creative and fun. Uh, and music, of course, played a big part in it, the whole mm -hmm. gothic, gothic punk rock. Um, so that's how that one evolved. And as I worked on it, I was not only interviewing designers, um, I was also you know, interviewing lots of kids who were goths, you know, visiting them and, and seeing how they collected, say, Victorian morning clothes or how they had a stuffed raven, which unfortunately my conservator would not allow me to put in the show because she was afraid it would bring in bugs and it was covered with arsenic to preserve it. And anyway, she thought that the stuffed raven was yucky and was not going to go in the show. But we had other things. We had a skull and, and other kinds of uh, jewelry and a kind of cabinet of curiosities that evoked some of these ideas too. So that was for me a really important show that that changed how I thought about uh, how I wanted to organize subsequent shows. Mm. Yeah, I, I feel like well, I, I don't know, but probably like to my mind, like that show. I think for maybe for a lot of people too, it's sort of I don't know if you felt like that show was the one that cemented you know. Uh, the reputation of the museum, but I, but it was so impactful. I feel like for a lot of people, and I, I'm not sure that shows like come with varying success. Like, but what was the feedback like? Oh, people love that. Young people love that show. It was really, really popular. Um, it got yeah. to the point, you know, these young black clad people would appear at the guard's desk, and they wouldn't even have to say anything. He would just say to them, "She's on the third floor." <laughs> I, I love that. Uh, well, on that note, maybe we can uh, talk a bit about, you know, fashion subcultures because it's such a, yeah, obviously I come from one and it, it's such a fascinating topic. And I wanted to ask you for your analysis on how subcultures form and what is the connection between the values that these subcultures represent and the visual representation that through fashion that goes with them? How do you well, see it formed? Historically, um, the majority of, of fashion subcultures have essentially been youth and music subcultures. So they've developed among young people who are uh, very heavily involved with a particular kind of music. Now, that's not always the sole thing. You also have so, subcultures that are related to particular sports like skateboarding or surfing. But music has been one of the most important ones. Another really important one is sexual subcultures. So you had all kinds of queer subcultures. You've got sort of S&M subcultures. I remember when I talked to um, 
when I was working on my book Fetish and I was talking to a bunch of guys who were into S&M and into leather and I said to them, this was back in the early 90s, I said, what do you think of the Versace collection where he did all of the leather ball gowns with the bondage straps? And they said, we hate it. And I said, what do you, how can you hate it? It's so beautiful. What do you mean? And, and they said, we hate it because for us, clothes have to a meaning and these clothes just make it about a fashion statement. And I kind of had to laugh and sort of said, well, you better just suck it up because fashion is a big machine that, that hoovers up all of the cool looks, which inevitably means all subcultural looks become part of the fashion system. It just eats them up. Um, and then you have to react in some way to try and draw boundaries, which are movable as the other people pick it up and wear it just for fashion reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's always a bit of this like cat and mouse game, right? Between exactly like moving the goalposts. That's right. And there's a great emphasis. People who are in subcultures really talk a lot about ideas of authenticity and values. Um, and for fashion people, it's much more about imagery. It's, it's about, is that look cool? And then the meaning of the imagery is much more blurred. It just, it doesn't become a reference to say particular sexual acts. It just becomes a reference to sexy. Right. Exactly. It's like your, you know, 15 year old girl wearing a choker that she bought at uh, Hot Topic, right? Right, right. Or like that New Yorker cartoon that shows some middle-aged woman wearing ripped blue jeans. And she says to her husband, that's sexy, but you wouldn't know anything about that. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. So in the world where, uh, I think I wrote in one article, I think it was Sertka, 2015 or 16, where there was like another pivot to appropriating from goth culture from mainstream fashion. I wrote that, you know, subcultures are condemned to be mined by uh, fashion just because the visual clues are so strong. The style is so strong that it it seems inevitable that it will be appropriated because what else do you mine? Well, and also, too, with certain subcultures like goth and like punk, the um, the core associations are also so strong. The ideas of a kind of the, the charisma of deviance, for example, and the sort of voluptuousness of death, all these ideas sort of occur to young people generation after generation, and they gravitate back towards that look. And and that includes fashion designers who will gravitate back towards that look. Hmm. So do you think, you know, what do we do uh, about this huge question of authenticity? <laughs> well, <laughs> without wanting to sound cynical, I think that authenticity is a chimera. It doesn't really exist. You can chase after it, but it's always receding into the distance. We know when we see things that are flagrantly inauthentic, that are mm-hmm. just so fake, it's, it's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. But can we ever find anything which is 100% truly authentic? It's always, in a way, been perverted in some way. And maybe that's just the nature of life, that there isn't any kind of purity. That in fact, that's sort of a horrible fascistic idea that you're looking for purity. Right, right. Yeah. Everything is mixed. Everything's mixed. And, and even the original 
people in the subculture, the ones who founded, say, a subculture, like the fetish subculture, before that was really commodified and brought into the fashion industry, you know, people were trying to make their own rubber clothes and stuff. And then someone who was good at it would start making it for other rubber fetishists. And then he'd have a little business going, making rubber gear. And so voila, it's already commodified. It's just on a small scale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. No, for sure. Uh, I, I guess the biggest difference we see is how it was so systematically and I guess systemically commodified to the point where it went from this housemade, right, homemade stuff to this like machine being fed for turning turning out looks. Yes. Well, that, of course, is a bigger problem than just fashions um, taking up subcultures. It's sort of it's fashion in general. It's like this sort of relentless beast that takes up. It's all about commodifying ideas and aspirations and, uh, mm-hmm. and images. Yeah. Well, one of the things like we, I, I talked about with a few friends and uh, it really came across um, with me reading the uh, latest uh, biography of uh, Malcolm McLaren. It's like how fashion used to be actually intimidating and purposefully mm. so. And, you know, McLaren was so adamant about, like, if he found out that you were from Vogue snooping around his store, like, he would kick you out. You know, he wanted nothing to do with this mainstream fashion. It's He was a very savvy person it's coming out of that whole kind of, um, the whole situationalist uh, idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But but yeah, it, 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 it was very savvy, and I and I can't. It sounds to me like that he was both very savvy, but also on some level very genuine. Because I mean, who would kick a person out of a store today? <laughs> you know, the entire the idea of not selling is a very foreign idea, or or selling to the right people. Or I feel like today it's Sell- like well, selling to the right people is still crucial because that will ruin. You want to grow your company, but as soon as you start selling it to too many of the wrong people, or even too many people, then you start losing some of its prestige. So it's a very delicate act that designers have to try and tow. Um, how much do they want to be puffing the the, the brand? Because if, what do they say about Cardin? If you puff it too much, it's like a cigarette; it's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I agree. But on some, but I do think on some level because fashion has become a very mass phenomenon. I'm talking about yes. high fashion, right? Compared yep. to what it used to be. Absolutely. I, that I feel. You know, these concerns of, uh, you know, the commercial concerns are so much winning over the concerns over one's image or values. Even, I don't even know if these companies have any values except, <laughs> except selling. But I do feel like that has that, that idea of, you know, selling to, the tribe, so to speak, right, has mm-hmm. very much is not at the forefront anymore. Yes, I mean, I think McLaren had a very clear idea that he had an avant-garde that he wanted to appeal to. 
um, which in itself is an interesting idea that probably has changed so much in the art world. I don't know if you can talk about having an avant-garde anymore. I don't think you can. Sort of like subculture. Those are things that have disappeared as a concept, as a viable concept. Yeah, yeah. I I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. But back to fashion being intimidating. I know you were, yes. you you had an aha moment for sure. So tell tell oh, me yes, what you yes. think. Well, no, I love I love that fact about fashion. I'm sure it's related to why fashion is is denigrated within our society because in addition to seeming frivolous, fashion seems vaguely threatening. It's associated with, you know, mean girls and rich skinny women. And, you know, people who are looking down on you. I think there's very much almost a kind of high school uh, visceral feeling that fashion can be used to strike a blow against you, that you're in or out and you're probably going to be out. So I think that in the past, because it was so clearly class based, you could see that if you're wearing couture, you're in a different category than someone going to a department store. Now that class thing is blurred, but there are other kind of self-proclaimed fashion elites who will look down on you in one way or another. I still remember a friend of mine going to Bergdorf Goodman and, and being snubbed by one of the saleswomen who said to her, oh, you should look on the fifth floor, which is where the less expensive things were. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Did she come back? Did she give her a pretty warm? Not for moment? many years. She was furious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, for sure. But I was thinking more in the, in the, in the benign way, the fashion used to be intimidating. So almost in like a modernist way where it was, you know, certain stratum of designer fashion said, we're going to elevate it so much and we're going to make it so difficult that in order to participate, you going to really have to make an effort, right? In the way modernist artists said, you know, we were going to elevate culture and make it difficult. Uh, but when you do get there, it will be much more rewarding. Yes, I suppose there's something of that. Although I don't know how many designers thought quite in those terms. But certainly if you think of, you know, someone like Balenciaga, his clothes were sophisticated and difficult in a way that led people at the time to compare him to a Picasso, whereas someone like Dior was compared to Watteau, who was much more immediately seductive and appealing and pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you do, you have, you had something of that too with Comme des Garçons, that, you know, the sort of daring to look ugly until you knew what it was all about. Yeah, that's how I was thinking primarily. It was probably like the biggest champion of that mentality is Ray Kawakura. Yeah. yeah. You know, she's, she's certainly not out to please anyone. Right. Although her bottom line is still very strong because she has all those other more mundane things that you can buy. Yeah, exactly. But it's kind of incredible how she's probably the only designer who, or one of the very few designers who have been able to maintain this reputation of a real artist and super cool while also selling very commercial things at the same time. Well, there again, it's interesting because she is someone who has said publicly that fashion is not art and that she's not an artist, which is part of an whole other interesting discourse where 
some very powerful designers, powerful in the sense that sort of viscerally powerful creators have denied that they are artists and that fashion is art, even as other people have wanted to put fashion on the art pedestal. Yeah. Uh, where where do you fall on the, on the spectrum? Well, I think that it's it's difficult for you know curators and magazine editors to say fashion is art when some of the best designers are saying it's not art. That is a problem. On the other hand, I think that it's likely that fashion is in the process of being redefined as art or some kinds of fashion, some kinds of avant-garde or high fashion are being seen as art. And partly because of the way they're shown in museums. You know, if you put a McQueen or Balenciaga or Rick Owens or V&A on a pedestal in an art museum, then it begins to acquire the aura of art, whatever the creator of it thought about it in the first place. It's something similar to what you do when you put, you know, an African mask in an art museum. You're saying it wasn't intended to be art originally by its creators and within the original culture, but it has been transformed and it's been reinterpreted as art. Hmm. So, so you feel like it's a lot of it is about contextualizing. Yes, uh, just the way everybody used to agree that classical music and old master paintings were high art, but it took quite a while before impressionism or jazz were accepted as being art, let alone film or fashion. Mm, right, yeah. So I've gone back and forth on the question, and I remember speaking to your point about it being museums, and so I would go back and forth, you know, yes, could be form of art. No, it really is design. It's, a, oh, it's, it's, it's another discipline, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And when McQueen's exhibit at the Met happened, and I went for the press preview to, press preview to see it, I was so impressed. I was all, almost emotionally drained by the time I was out of that exhibit. And I thought, you know, I would be incredibly hard-pressed to say that what I just saw is not art. Exactly. A lot of people thought that. And I think that McQueen is one of the ones that you see a growing consensus that whatever you say about fashion in general, what he created was art. Um, and he certainly believed what he did was art. And it engages with the kind of real emotions that other people who are recognized as artists engage with. Uh, it's obviously not just a decorative object, but something that has real symbolic meaning and emotion behind it. Um, so there, I think you can say that certainly it's becoming more and more clear that at least some things in the world of fashion also coexist within the world of art as art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But that so, doesn't mean that all fashion is art. Not every t-shirt or <laughs> pair of underpants in your closet qualifies as art. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Just not like every doodle is an art as, as well. But um, why do you think fashion has become so um, prevalent in the past 30 or so years, because I remember clearly, or maybe it's just my view, I don't know, but I remember clearly when I started writing about 
fashion, but even before, and so my interest in designer fashion proper began around 98. Uh, it also, it seemed very much that fashion was sort of looking up to art. It was very much wanted to be art adjacent uh, and participate in art somehow. Uh, whereas I feel like today, like, it's fashion that's the coolest thing. Yes, I think there's 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 something to that. I think it started happening in the 90s and it started happening, I think, in part because of issues about celebrity and also issues about the individual, that the individual could use fashion much more easily to make a statement about himself or herself. You know, that fashion was a kind of wearable art, as it were, that you could really use to promote yourself. And in an age of people wanting to be celebrities, that's very important. Whereas art, if it's a painting, if it's a sculpture, if it's a, you know, even if it's a performance piece or a video, it somehow is less immediate. Clothes are really, they don't exist really, except in relation to a body and a human being. Right. And I suppose it's also, do you think either the, our uh, societies or Western societies, but also some Eastern societies, you know, getting much wealthier in the past couple of decades that has spurred that interest in fashion? Because a lot of it is very Veblenian, right? It's the good old conspicuous consumption. Well, yes, of course. I think that if you think of shoes, for example, it's clear that we're buying more, many more shoes than we used to. And we're spending more on them for the most part on shoes. And I think that's part of a sort of conspicuous consumption and a kind of consumer fetishism, which is related to a particular stage in capitalism. I mean, you could call it late capitalism, but that implies you think the end is near. Um, and it's not just a question of money. It's a question of, of a mindset that objects will fulfill you and objects will expand who you are. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that uh, you're, you're encouraged to get, get more and more objects, even if they're, you know, sort of like choosing between 50 different kinds of shampoo. It's still you're making statements that I use this shampoo, therefore I'm this kind of person and I'm twice as cool as you are. <laughs> so the, there's a whole, there's a whole system of um, enlarging your self esteem based on acquiring particular kinds of objects and brands. Mm -hmm. So on that note, actually, I, I have a very tricky question, but it's also a question that interests me because now we're getting into self-analysis as well. <laughs> so <laughs> you, I imagine you've been in the same situation. How do you differentiate between, you know, we, we are obviously into fashion and we love fashion and we buy fashion. And there is some fashion that you do have an emotional connection with and you do have a cultural connection with and it comes loaded with meaning that is just be, that is, goes way beyond conspicuous consumption or the utilitarian aspect of the clothes. How do you for yourself differentiate and honestly, like, how do you keep sane, <laughs> you know, in the world where this part attracts you? But there is also all these other parts that, you know, you may not find attractive or even off-putting. Do you ever go through, do these thoughts ever cross your mind? 
It's sure. I mean, I there you can go in a, a lot of different directions from what you're saying, but I think people, even fashion people, often feel kind of disgust when they're confronted with too much stuff, and the idea of, of um, fashion playing a a disproportionate kind of obsessive role in people's lives. So we talk about fashion victims, you know, and fashion addicts. Um, but that's every, that's on a continuum because everybody is slightly addicted to fashion and is a little bit of a fashion victim, just like everybody's a little bit of a fetishist. So the awareness of that comes and goes, but sometimes if you're, the more involved you are in fashion, the more you can become aware that there's, there's a glut there. There's there's an obsession there, which seems like too much of it could be unhealthy. Yeah, yeah. Even some designers have told me that. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, Dries Van Otten has told me that. He said sometimes, I'm not sure if we should be putting out more stuff into the world. Yeah, it's the the amount of stuff when you see the piles and piles of clothes that are being thrown into landfills. You really do have to think there probably is too much stuff being produced uh, and it's going to be a major paradigm shift. If the, if the fashion business can switch to doing uh, less, but better things, it's hard to imagine how that could be done. Yeah. I mean, I don't fewer, but better. Yeah, exactly. Well, I don't think it can be done without really the audience switching its habits. Yeah. You know, but I don't know how you, get off that you know how do you kick that habit when you have so much cheap stuff readily available and very difficult to say yeah yeah and the culture of newness which you know let's let's face it fashion is responsible for that it's just well, been yeah humans humans are responsible for that because humans like crows and like certain other animals are curious and we like new stuff I mean, we're interested in new stuff and we're easily bored with old stuff. That, I think, is not not just a product of the fashion system. It's also a product of how human brains work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just you could find perhaps other ways of seeking newness rather than buying, you know, this week's pair of shoes. Yeah, yeah. I Yeah, I agree. I, I, I always wonder, like, when I think about myself and about other people I always wonder like okay where is the boundary you know like have you found the right boundary you know because on the one hand I feel like our culture encourages so much uh consumption and you know we're we in this I always find it hilarious when you know I meet someone and they say like and you know we start talking about their interests and and they'll be like I'm a foodie Okay, what does that mean? Well, I like going to restaurants and eating. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, it, it used to like an interest used to be a kind of a cultural, you know, an intellectual pursuit of some sort. And now, you know, people find that you know the footies or I'm into fitness and whatnot. But I wonder, you know, there's got to be some line drawn because. I, I was reading an article in the Times about a month ago, I think, and an author said that uh, 
when people say they're a collector, that's just an acute, just that's just an excuse for rich people to buy stuff. And I was like, well, that's a little bit. Oh, that's a bit of an overstatement, maybe. <laughs> you know? Well, yes, I mean the idea of, of a collection is that it's not just an accumulation of stuff, but that there is some kind of a thought process behind it, where you're trying to, for example, you know, find the every single kind of beetle in the world, or you're going to try and track down, you know, paintings by a particular painter. I mean, there's usually some kind of thought and some kind of organization behind a real collection, not just an accumulation of a lot of stuff. But it's interesting. I, I just read recently, most men who collect, say, sneakers, think of themselves as collectors, whereas most women who have a lot of shoes in their wardrobe just say they love shoes. They don't see themselves as collectors, which may come from a gendered history of collecting, where what men collected was regarded as important, and women just bought things to adorn themselves, and it was not seen necessarily as a collection. Right. Although some people, some some fashion people do create clear collections. I mean, I think Daphne Guinness was very conscious of creating a collection when she was, you know, purchasing things by people like McQueen. Right, right. Yeah. Where do you think this gender difference comes from? You know, why is collecting toy trains somehow esteemed and collecting shoes is like, you know, how, why is collecting shoes superficial and collecting, collecting toy trains isn't? Well, I think that's because of patriarchy. So anything that uh, anything associated with males is ipso facto more valid. The sports page is more important than the style page. <laughs> uh, uh, I want to switch um, gears a little bit and uh, go away from this very disheartening note and. Uh, <laughs> For someone who actually used to be a sports fan and one day woke up and asked himself why. <laughs> and so we'll finish on that note. Um, I, what I, I wanted to talk to you about a very, very rich topic. Um, and there is a, there's a bit of an agenda behind this topic. And I know this could take us three hours, but you know, we can do it. We don't have to spend three hours on it. When I taught at Parsons, I've always wondered why there wasn't a course on um, history of contemporary fashion. Because mm -hmm. I, what I found in my students, uh, in fashion students, that their horizons often did not extend beyond what was transient at the time. So, like, you mm -hmm. know, when I was uh, teaching, it was all like about Alexander Wang, for example. You know, they yeah. all wanted to be Alexander Wang. And I would show them like a Hussein Shalayan show on YouTube and like the entire world would fall apart. <laughs> so I thought like it's, and I thought it, it would be incredible to have a course in contemporary, you know, in history and contemporary fashion, but at least we could attempt to sort of sketch it out a bit here. I thought, with you. And I wanted to ask you, like, for you, because I have in mind a very specific time when it starts for me, but I wanted to ask you, when does it start for you, you know, with whom? Well, 
if you think of contemporary art, traditionally that started mm, about the 1970s. But as time goes on, contemporary gets pushed up closer. So now they're thinking, oh, maybe more mid-1980s or even 1990s. Soon it will be contemporary as 21st century art. Um, like vintage. I had a, a dealer who said to me once, vintage is something that you can't buy from the designer. It's like it's not left around in the store to be sold on sale. A season or two after, it's then it becomes vintage because you can't get it anywhere. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you can't do a history of contemporary art if it's now because that's more like sort of a sociology of contemporary art or contemporary fashion. Um, I think you're right that most... Young people, that's what they're primarily interested in is fashion right now and and big name designer fashion right now. So it's a kind of celebrity and, and con contemporaneity that are important. Um, I think you can look at it in terms of who are the figures that are emerging and compare them to figures who were important a little bit earlier and see if there's a new kind of designer who seems to be becoming trendy or a new kind of fashion that seems to be becoming trendy. That's a sort of interesting. That I would compare it to looking at movements in fashion the way you look at movements in, say, the art world. You know, mm -hmm. which, which designers, like which painters, have moved from being one of a number of interesting figures who are working to being a major figure that everybody's recognized and starts to be influenced by. That sort of mm, filtering out of certain people as being the, the headliners, which may be something that lasts for a while or it may just be a flash in the pan so that you look back at people who were super famous you know, 20 years before and you think, oh, gee, I wonder why they got so much airplay. Were they advertising a lot? Is that why people were paying attention to them? Right. So it, it can be something which is just who's trendy, or it can be something which is profound about movements that are going on below the surface that you start to see coming to the fore in the work of certain creators. Mm -hmm. So like, where, where does it start for you? Does it start with you know, 1947 Dior, or does it start with the summer run? Does it start with Vivian Westwood? Like, yeah, where? I mean, I would say modern art starts with something like Paul Poiret or the 1920s, teens or 20s would be modern art starting then. Um, then by the time you get up to Dior and Balenciaga, it's funny because in a way it starts to look almost postmodern, but it's still part of that rise of couture. So it's still golden age or silver age of couture. It starts to get more modern in the 60s with youth quake and then really in the 70s because then fashion starts to become far more individualistic. So I guess I would consider that contemporary fashion starts post 70s, sort of late 70s or early 80s when you start mm -hmm. to see some of the same themes emerging which are still important about the designer is being a modern kind of superstar celebrity and no longer having to strain for that. You know, like people didn't really invite designers for dinner until like the seventies for the most part, designers were still mostly tradespeople, although they might be hugely successful ones. But then by the late seventies, they're becoming quite super famous and super trendy. Um, and the production of clothing is different. 
But then you find another break that makes contemporary fashion, I think, really starts happening in a way by the 1990s when because of changes in globalization and technology, the fashion system starts to get off-sourced and it starts to speed up rapidly. So I think that may be the breaking point that you start seeing when the production starts moving to East Asia and things start occurring faster and faster, the rise of fast fashion, that those have made a a real break in fashion that's changed from the years of the 80s and the early 90s. Yeah. Yeah, To me, I it would probably, I feel like the real pivotal point was with Malcolm McLaren, Vivian Westwood. I feel like it was really the first time that youth culture entered, you know, the sort of high fashion world. And we really haven't looked back since, if you think about it. Um, but the hip, the hippies and mods had already brought youth culture in the 60s and even the late 50s. So that you had, mm-hmm. you know, people like Saint Laurent, um, and Courage were picking up from youth culture by 65. That mm-hmm. all of this, remember Courage saying, I'm the man who invented the miniskirt. Mary Quant just popularized the idea. And then she said, well, that's not how I remember it. But anyway, it wasn't Courage or me. It was the girls on the street who did it. You know, it was mm-hmm. already, there, there were youth cultures long before punk. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, could say, you could say the Zazus and the Zoot Suiters were a youth culture that began mm-hmm. to affect fashion, you know, even by the 40s. Yeah. Well, that's how McLaren started, right? It was really the Zoot Suit that inspired sort of his, his first and Vivian Westwood's uh, looks. It's just people don't really know about that part. Well, that would be a revival of a previous style. And they were yeah. into revivals. I mean, in those early years uh, of, of sex, for example, they were really into reviving like sort of 1950s rocker styles and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel What I feel like about Vivian Westwood is, you know, once they put that on the catwalk in Paris, I feel like that was a very pivotal moment for... Contemporary fashion, you know, because, you know, Courage and Saint Laurent, they sort of, they, they took from the street, but they were always on the catwalk. You know, they were always in this high fashion realm, whereas like McLaren and Westwood, they kind of, you know, they, they stormed the gates, right? Well, that they were certainly perceived that way. And that provided an inspiration for generations of later, particularly British designers, who followed in their wake doing historicizing and avant-garde fashion, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Galliano, Westwood, Chilean, all of them took a page from Westwood's book. Yeah. 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 And also when I feel, when I think of obviously designers like undercover and like the Belgian yeah. six, I mean, they were all influenced. Uh, it was, I almost, and maybe it's my own illusion, but I almost feel it was a moment where, People were like, "Oh, that can be on the catwalk." Uh-huh. Like, like, like that—that's allowed to be high fashion, and then that's sort of for me that I imagine that's what opened the floodgates for you know for like the Walter von Byron dumps of this world, and yes, and sisters and undercovers and 
so on, and of course. Yes, that you, you could make a good case that it began with Westwood. It's interesting because there were only a few years, I think, that were really important, and then she began to parody herself. But those mm-hmm. first few years were indeed extremely important. Yeah. Um, although it was amazing how fast punk was assimilated into the system. Oh, it was it was like a lightning flash. And what exactly. I found out from that McLaren's uh, biography that at the first Sex Pistols concert in Paris, uh, uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier was there, Kenza was there, Lagerfeld was there, Castel Jacques was there, and and you could see, like, especially in Gautier, right? It was almost immediate how yeah. he swiped from punk and, of course, made, you know, a very glamorous Parisian version out of it. Uh, but, yeah, it was, like, almost, uh, I, I agree, it was very quick that it got co-opted. Yeah. No, no, it's fascinating. Of course, Gautier never never hid how much he loved English youth culture and and he absolutely appropriated and transformed it. Yeah. Which uh, reminds us, in a way, how appropriation is not only a bad thing. Appropriation is, in effect, an, in part, an inevitable thing. That's the only way that you get any kind of development within an art form. Artists uh, constantly look at what other artists are doing and pillage it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, yeah, we, we did a whole podcast episode on that with Angela Flocavento, but... Yeah, the, the the backlash, you know, against quote unquote, you know, and I don't know what like, I feel like I almost need to put quotes around it now, the word appropriation, because it, it like you said, it doesn't need to have this negative uh, uh, connotation. And Gautier is the prime offender, right? Like I was looking over his work and he probably couldn't do half of it today. He'd be accused every day of stealing from him others yes and and like Saint Laurent well it's a complicated issue appropriation that's a whole separate that's a whole separate conversation trying to twist apart which part of appropriation comes from appreciation and is positive and which part is more like a colonial a plunder right exactly exactly but yeah I agree if we go down that rabbit hole we're never <laughs> gonna get out of here Valerie. <laughs> But I agree. And then, the, you know, the sad thing today is that, like, in our uh, should first ask question later culture, no one, where people demand sort of a black and white picture of the world, it's who's asking these questions even before they're accusing someone um, of appropriation. I have another question for you, and that's purely my personal interest, so the audience is going to have to suffer through it, because it's my podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, what did you, what, I never understood what, what, why the new Dior's 1947 new look has become so fetishized by fashion. Because when I look at it, obviously from my vantage point, it seems incredibly conservative, incredibly bourgeois. You know, what made it, what created such a legend around it? Ah, well, because it became a legend because it transformed fashion from something that, as Dior said, you know, boxy suits that made women look like boxers or soldiers. 
and he wanted women to look like flowers. So it went to something hyper feminine. And as you say, something that was um, historicizing, that looked back at Belle Epoque fashions uh, instead of modernist fashions. Um, when you use the term that is fetishized by the fashion world, it's interesting because it is also replete with classic examples of fetish fashion. In fact, if you look at, you know, pornographic and fetishistic imagery, Dior's new look sort of ticks all the boxes. It's got the corsetry, it's got the petticoats, it's got the high heels, it's got the stockings. It's got all of this sort of over-the-top, hyper-feminine elements which contribute to the creation of a sort of voluptuous yet phallic image of femininity. So I think that its tremendous appeal may have also had, you know, sort of subliminal sexual currents to it, that this was a style which um, was a form of highly eroticized image of femininity. And that that helps explain both why it was so immediately successful worldwide and also why it continues to be fetishized both as a fashion and as a kind of sexualized dress. Okay. That, I mean, yeah. Galliano, Galliano once said that Christian Dior was the first true fetishist designer. And although that's a, a tremendous oversimplification, you can understand why he did say that. Mm -hmm. Okay. You're making me look at it with very fresh eyes. And <laughs> Not so yeah, boring everyone, anymore, eh? It now no, starting to seem yeah. kinky. <laughs> yeah, everyone's homework is to go look at old porn images, at the classic porn images. Uh, it, it makes sense when you put it that way, you, because a lot of it looks like, okay, you know, these A-line skirts with very long, um, these short jackets. It, it does evoke like a very conservative look but i could see how back then it was considered very erotic in the way it highlighted the waist for it's example. both very armored with that armored torso and also very hyper feminine i mean those mm -hmm. skirts on the runway when they swirl around i mean they would flare out and just go for in all directions. I mean, they, you could see in the footage of the films, they'd knock ashtrays off the tables of the women who were sitting in the audience smoking while they watched the fashion show. I mean, these were, these were really impressive clothes. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Okay. That's, that's good to know. What else, what else, uh, what else can we put in context here? <laughs> <laughs> what else for you? What other, you know, incredibly memorable fashion moments that you think have sort of changed. Uh, well, the, the Japanese fashion revolution was <laughs> incredibly important. I mean, and although there's no question that Ray also took a few pages out of Westwood's book, I would be more inclined to put the big change with Comme uh, des Garçons and Yoji in 83 rather than with Westwood, say, a decade earlier, because I think that um, the very deliberate uh, deconstruction of fashion that the avant-garde Japanese were engaged in, including Miyake, as well as Kamde Garçon and Yochi, uh, was ultimately one of the most powerful 
uh, influences on fashion and on, it was so bizarre at the time. I mean, I remember wearing those clothes in the mid eighties and most people just did not understand them. It was like, what the hell are you wearing? (laughs) But if somebody, if you saw someone else who did understand them and who was wearing them, it was like you were exchanging a secret Masonic handshake. You're being Mm -hmm. like, come, yes, come. You understood something that other people didn't understand and that it became a sort of a, that's what arty people started to wear. Yeah. Well, this, this sort of, this tribalism is exactly the thing that I miss the most today. It really is where it used to be, uh, you know, you saw someone else on the street in Rickowens and you were like, you gave that look to each other and you knew that you were part of something, not because you bought something that's considered cool for a lot of money or avant-garde or whatnot, but there were values, there were underlying values that went with it. And I no longer feel that way. Well, I suppose that's because of uh, the way uh, information and images scoot around the world with the click of uh, a computer. I mean, I think that that kind of thing has made powerful images much more imagey and less thick in terms of their meaning. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't even, you know, like, how do we find meaning in fashion? today i guess that 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 is like the rather serious question that always twirls around in my mind and i really don't have an answer when when seeing and i know i've given this example a million times i apologize to my audience but you know when you're seeing someone in a band t-shirt but it no longer guarantees that the person has ever listened to the music you know where do we find meaning Well, there's always been a division between the signifier and what it signifies. It's arbitrary. It's always, in a way, been arbitrary. Um, You know, you can put a little baby in a Harvard sweatshirt, and it doesn't mean the kid is going to Harvard. It just implies some potential aspiration. Um, I think that meaning is created collectively by people. And I think that that's true now, but it may be more difficult to define that because it's harder to see who your group is because of all of the noise that's going on online, as it were. It's hard. I think most of us still pick up on what we wear and what we value from people that we actually know and see in real life. However, weird and antiquated, the idea of real life seems in a virtual world. Right. Yeah. Um when you dress, do you still think about these things? Well, not every morning. Then I will be stuck there standing in the closet <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but in general? Uh, I think about different aspects of fashion, depending on what is, um, what's interesting me right at any given moment. And that varies a lot. I mean, I go... From one thing, when I was working on Gothic, I was very interested in, you know, that whole world. When I was working on the color pink and the exhibition and book about that, I had listened to very different music and I was thinking about different things. So, um, yeah, that changes. 
I don't have any big, you know, philosophical things that are always in the front of my mind. I'm flitting around from from the latest enthusiasm. Right. Do do you get do you get uh, as you're working on exhibit? Do you get uh, do you usually get a new sense of appreciation for something because you have to take a deep dive? Like how sure, do you how do you go from gothic to pink? And yeah. you know what goes in your mind. You start, uh, ideas start percolating even while you're finishing one project. You're starting to work on another project. That's how what I found. And fortunately, since I've got this really great team of curators and educators at the museum, I don't need to do all the shows myself. In the beginning, I was doing, you know, up to five shows a year that I was curating. Now I can do a show every couple of years because I've got other people who can be working on their shows in the interim even whilst our, the museum does four shows a year, but I can wait and let other people think through their projects and, and, you know, I can work with them on some of it, but in the meantime, I can be doing a deep dive on another project myself. So it's a very gratifying thing, both to work on my own projects and to see how other people's projects are evolving and mutating in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By the way, that pink exhibit was great. Like, I did not expect to like it as much as I did. Yes, well, pink is a very controversial color. A lot of people hate the color pink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was, you know, pink is the punk color. That's what you said. So I should probably be going soon. <laughs> yes, we're, all, we're, we're, almost, uh, we're almost done. Is there uh, anything else you would like to address before uh, you go? This, this I don't think so. You've had you've had a lot of good questions. Okay, great. Thank you so much, and uh, I hope to see you soon in person. It's been yes, that will be great. Okay, thanks, Valerie. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Emil. You've been listening to the Styles I Guys podcast, hosted by Eugene Rapkin, produced by Patrick Leduc. Intro and outro music by Wesley Isolt of Cold Cave. Please support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Thank you for listening.